Good morning. God is good. You know, all the time, God is good. All God's people said, Amen. This morning we are finishing our walk through First and Second Peter. And um, <clears throat> if you please stand as I read Second uh, Peter three fourteen through eighteen. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard for us to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing that this beforehand, take care that you not get carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Father, we have uh, <clears throat> heard your words. And as you've uh, spoken to me, I pray that you would speak to us today on the, probably one of the hardest things to deal with in a church. But we know, Lord, your grace and your truth and that you are with us. So we give you our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <coughs> Well, on March 20th, 1980, Mount St. Helens, a supposed dormant volcano on the western side of the state of Washington, began to quake and rumble. The local population on that day was evacuated to a supposed safe distance of eight miles. As time went on, the side of the mountain began to bulge. And scientists were not alarmed because past research showed that volcanoes never blow sideways. But on May 18th, the side of Mount St. Helens exploded, shooting tons of debris downhill at speeds of over 150 miles an hour. A minute later, the volcano exploded upward with the equivalent of power of 500 atomic bombs. 253 square miles of forest were devastated, and 57 people lost their lives. The scientists had assumed that natural events would just continue on as always before, but they were tragically wrong. The same is true for us and for all of creation. Last week, uh, as Pastor Eric shared the words of the Apostle Peter, in the first 13 verses of this chapter, we heard, we heard yeah, that the truth of the word of God tells us that there will be someday an event that will occur that will explode outward with more the equivalent of 500,000 million billion trillion atomic bombs when our Lord and Jesus, our Savior, returns to earth 
to cast judgment on those who have rejected him and to gather together and take home those who have surrendered their lives to them. And he, at that time, will destroy the heavens and the earth that he created in the beginning. So he can create a new heaven and a new earth where everything will be new and perfect and glorious for those who are with him forever. Now, this will happen because the word of God says so. Amen? Which means we had better drop the, the assumptions in our lives that life will continue as we know it. Because even at this very moment, the next moment, it could happen. Peter wrote about that last week. Let's go back to Second um, Peter 3, start at verse 10, when Peter says this is what it's like. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done will all be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. These are the words of the Apostle Peter as a concerned shepherd who wanted the people of his church to stay focused on the promises of God, that in the midst of the struggles of persecution and the conflict within the church, that Jesus would return to give them victory and Jesus would be there to give them life forever with him. In our text for today, we continue on this theme of staying focused. But now he ends this letter telling us the four things that we need to do as we focus on the return of Christ in the midst of the struggles we have in life. We first see that in light of the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we should be diligently pursuing personal holiness and righteousness. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So Peter here is clearly stating the truth that, that God's coming day of judgment should motivate us to diligently persevere in our walk with God. Because we believe in the second coming of Jesus, we should be motivated and found diligent to pursue personal holiness and righteousness so that when Jesus returns, he'll see us living for him and not for us. To be diligent implies making every effort or exerting ourselves towards a goal. And, and this kind of stuff doesn't happen accidentally, brothers and sisters. This requires a deliberate focus on our part. Unless we don't, we, don't, we will drift into a different direction. The phrase here, to be found by him without spot or blemish, means to be blameless before God because we have been forgiven. It's not our effort, but basically we can be that. And there's only one that can do that, we know, and that's Jesus. In 1 John 1, we read that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. <clears throat> if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 
But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We do need Jesus to do this for us, amen? Because our approach, human approach to sin is rather either to ignore it or to justify it. Jesus, God, does not ignore or rationalize when it comes to sin. He takes sin seriously, so seriously that God sent his son on a cross to die for us. God deals truthfully with us about our sin. We can either receive his righteous judgment or we can enjoy his forgiveness by repenting of sin and turning and asking for forgiveness. You see, when God forgives, he also forgets. It's as though we had never sinned. We are then without spot and blemish. And in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, God himself tells us what happens when he forgives us. He says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. In Colossians 1, 19 through 20, we read that Jesus is all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Romans 5.1 declares, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Today, Peter tells us here that we are to be diligently pursuing peace with Jesus. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. The Greek word peace here is more than just quietness. It has some of the sense of the Hebrew word shalom, that it implies a well-being of soul or spirit. But Peter's concern here is that we have peace with God and then peace with each other and then peace with ourselves. And so we are to be found ourselves prospering spiritually in God and trusting in his faithful possession. It means that we should have peace with him and all of ourselves. And we are to maintain this peaceful relationship with Jesus right up to the end whether it means death or the rapture. Jesus said in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. But in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Amen? Jesus has given us a way to peace, and we can be also spot, spotless and blameless before him. If we are not found to be with Jesus, if we're not found to be maturing and be more like Jesus, we can only blame our selfish self-wills. The second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the day of the judgment should be the motivation for us in our perseverance to walk with God. And I trust that we all believe that the truth that Jesus is coming back. Do we all believe that? Well, how much do we think about it? How much does it affect our lives? Wouldn't it affect how we live out our lives if we had the view all the time about the return of Christ? Would husbands and wives argue about things if they both were viewing the coming of Christ? Would children continue to disobey their parents and politicians tell lies and 
people disrespect authority on earth if they thought about the coming of Christ? Would churches fight and divide if members were living in the view of Christ's coming? Would we spend all the money and all the stuff that we think we need if we knew Jesus was coming? Would we waste all our time in frivolous things in life if we viewed our lives in the coming of Christ? In our text for today, when Peter says we are to be without spot or blemish, he's not implying that we have to be perfect. But rather, he is, he is pressing us. He is, he is prodding us. He is exhorting us to make it our, our normal, every day, every hour, every minute, every moment, habit and effort to be found by him without spot or blemish. In light of the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we should be diligently, constantly, continuously pursuing personal holiness and righteousness in our walk with Jesus. Amen? Secondly, in light of the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we should be diligently and passionately sharing the gospel with those who do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Peter says right right here, and count the patience of God, excuse me, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, he says. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them about these manners. So verse 15 here tells us why Jesus has not returned yet. God is being patient. God is waiting for more people to come to faith. And the longer God delays his return, the greater opportunity for people to know Jesus. Peter adds some further weight to it by saying, Paul said the same thing. Now here, Peter is affirming what he just said, we saw in our text last week. 2 Peter 3.9, he said, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In both verses, the implied thought is this. Don't get caught up so much in your own issues and our own problems with sin, so much so that we think of the second coming as God coming to bail us out. In the midst of it, forgetting there are millions of people that are going to go to hell. The reason Jesus hasn't come back yet because he's waiting for God to fulfill it, which means Jesus is waiting for us to get busy and share the gospel. This is on us too. Our trials are nothing compared to the eternal punishment that sinners without Jesus will experience. In other words, Peter is telling us to get our focus off ourselves put our focus on the people who need Christ and give them the gospel, the gospel that that God the Father sent Christ the Son into the world to die on a cross in our place for our sins so we might be forgiven and redeemed and restored back to God when we surrender our hearts and lives to Jesus. This is the sacrificial call to passionately proclaim the glory of God in Christ for the joy of all people.
We read of this in 2 Timothy 2 when Paul declares, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with its eternal glory. This is also the great commission call that Jesus gave to his disciples and to us. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he says. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. When Jesus returns, it will mean salvation not only for us, but for all the people who will come into faith through the things that we do or don't do when we won't see them there. Any discomfort we have today in this world is more than worth it if people can come to Christ. In light of the second coming, we should diligently and passionately share the gospel. Amen? Third, in light of the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we should be diligently resisting the lure of false teachings of the truth of the Word of God. Now, Peter's talked about this quite often already in First and Second Peter. And here, what we read, starting at verse 15, and count the patience of God as our salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you not get carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Here again, as a concerned shepherd, Peter wants his people to persevere and he knows and we hear in the Bible that the greatest danger to the church is false teachers. And he began in verse 15 and finishes in verse 16 when he commends the Apostle Paul wrote, Paul's writings as the word of God. And then he points out that false teachers twist the things that Paul and other parts of the Bible say. Brothers and sisters, the history of the church of Jesus Christ is inseparable from the history of Satan's attempts to kill the church. While difficult challenges have arisen from outside the church, the most dangerous always come from within. That's what Paul wrote most of his letters. For from within arise false teachers who masquerade as bearers of God's truth. Now false te teachers can take on in many forms, uh, custom crafted to the times, cultures and contexts. And while the evangelical church has a range of errors that they have to watch out for, most of these things have to do with the outworking of how we as Christians live out the gospel. False teachers in this area inevitably begin to raise questions, not only about what you do, but about God and the gospel itself. The most common false teaching today we see is the gospel of moralism, where the Christian life is 
our effort. God blesses those who help themselves, we hear. Work hard, keep your nose clean, tell the truth and live a good life, and you'll go to heaven. Didn't even hear Jesus' name in there at all. Another false teaching is legalism. Now, legalism and moralism are related to each other, where moralism affirms the exchange with God in broad terms, uh, morality for God's blessing. Legalism is very specific, unbiblical, in the way it points out its understanding of what kind of obedience God will bless. Another kind of false teaching today is the opposite of moralism and legalism, and it's called antinomianism. Strictly speaking, they deny there's a legitimate place for God's law in the Christian life. Basically, they teach that God doesn't demand anything from us except to trust in Jesus. Christianity is all about grace. As long as we believe in Jesus, we can do what we want. The church is also in danger of false teachings from the cultural pressures that we feel. And when it begins to touch the, the message and the mission of the church, we begin to drift from our calling. When the church begins to accumulate its, or excuse me, accommodate its message to the prevailing culture, it ultimately ends up being a false teaching in the church. Uh, usually, lately, politics, the gospel of politics, the gospel of social issues. Lately, the therapeutic gospel is making headways in lots of people's uh, hearts and churches. In the end, however, our culture poses the most significant danger through its constant drumbeat, drumbeat of independence or autonomy. As Westerners, we assume that we are self-sufficient, self-determining individuals, and that we can create our own identities and our own futures. And as a result, we assume no one has the right to tell us what to do, or even to hold us to account. We see this today in the area of sexuality. We define our own gender and our own sexual practices. In the area of, of conception, we rationalize abortion. In the area of marriage, we justify divorce and adultery and open marriage and polygamy. And there's a new one, polymory, where there's any gender, multiple partners. It, it just continues. But this autonomy plays itself out in other ways in the church. Because we determine our own selves and destinies, there's no God who can or will send people to hell. As a matter of fact, there's no true religion we hear today. All religions are simply private, private means of us learning how to deal with life. Proselytizing, preaching the gospel, sharing the truth about heaven and hell now is, uh, is bad manners and bad policy and sometimes illegal. From the Garden of Eden and on, we begin to follow the enemy's promise that you will be like God. And we ask the enemy's question, did God really say? While our culture forms has forms of autonomy, and they usually don't make it into the church, but we are affected, and sometimes it does creep in. When people refuse 
to do what the Bible says, we begin to be in trouble. So the question is, what does a false teacher look like in the church today? Well, Eric Raymond, uh, the pastor of Emmaus Bible Church in Omaha, Nebraska, wrote an article entitled, uh, The Most Dangerous Person in the Church, to which he asked the question, who is the most dangerous person in my church? Pastor Raymond answered that question not by focusing on an individual, but on a type of person. And he ultimately found out, as he did studies and interviews, that the most dangerous people in our churches are apparently the smart people who are unteachable. Who are smart people who are unteachable. Raymond said, when I say unteachable, I mean this is a person who has got it all figured out. They're the classic, don't confuse me with the facts, I know what I believe. Those who are unteachable are constantly critical, and this is the dangerous for the church, because that invariably brings division. This type of boiling pot will eventually spill over, and when they do this, they will hurt people, and they will hurt the gospel, and they will hurt the church. It's my experience, Pastor Raymond says, that division in the church usually is a result of somebody being unteachable. This type of thing has a long legacy. Consider the after trees who liked to put himself first and stir up division. How did he do this? He did not submit to the teaching of the apostles. He was unteachable. Uh, we read this in 3 John chapter 1. 9 and 10, where the Apostle John wrote, I have written something to the church that Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Pastor Raymond closes by saying, this is obviously dangerous for his soul, but also for the church. Just like Diotrephes had influence in the congregation, so too do unteachable people have influence in our local churches. The influence of an unteachable person is a vehicle of division. What God's word tells us here is that false teachers in the church are those who are unteachable. And false teachers also crave and seek attention. And they also reject authority of the leadership in the church. The sad aspect of church life, even as we experience it in our church and all churches today, is that people who lead people astray, causing divisions, usually draw people to themselves not to Jesus Christ. False teachers in the church promote the kingdom of self rather than the kingdom of God, and they teach the gospel of self rather than the gospel of Jesus. It's also worth remembering that uh, as we seek to discern those who would ultimately tear apart our churches, one of the evidences of the Holy Spirit's presence is our leaders in our constant attempt to create unity and peace in the church based not on us, but on the Holy Spirit and the Word of God in Jesus, where false teachers undermine that work by claiming that they are more spiritual, more knowledgeable, more experienced 
than the leaders and the church itself. Instead of seeking to build up others in the faith and encourage the chosen leadership, they grumble and cause divisions between good, loving Christian people. False teachers flatter themselves and urge others to become like them rather than to become like Jesus Christ. The centrality of the message of Jesus Christ is then compromised and sometimes even lost. In 1 Corinthians 10.1, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. In Romans 16, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but they serve their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. In Titus 3, we read, Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, having nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and self-condemned. In light of the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we must diligently resist the lure of the false teachings of the unteachable false teachers. They crave attention and they make themselves known and they reject the authority of the church. We are called as leaders and as a people of God to protect the church. Amen? In light of our second coming in our Lord Jesus Christ, we lastly, we read, should be pursuing spiritual maturity by growing in the knowledge and the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, Peter says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Peter ends his letter here in verse 18 as he, as he began it by urging his readers to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When, when Paul start, started to write Second Peter, he started it in verse 2, saying, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and our Jesus our Lord. What Peter is saying here is, keep on growing in grace. Keep on growing in grace. That, that grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is not just a starting point, Grace is the main ingredient of our spiritual growth. We all still have a lot of room for that growth. Amen? That was kind of quiet. We are to grow in grace, the grace that comes from God's unmerited favor. It's also, we looked at in Peter, it's also the power that we have, the power of the spiritual graces that we, we, we he even talked about it, the first part of his uh, letter in First Peter, where he said, for this very reason, he says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection. He's saying these things come from grace when we use grace in the way that we mature. We're also to grow as a knowledge 
this is not just kind of any knowledge, but this is the knowledge of knowing about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, but also knowing him as a personal, intimate Savior. The antidote to the deception and destruction of false teaching and false teachers is to grow in grace and to grow in knowledge. If we are growing, brothers and sisters, in godliness and holiness and grace and knowledge, we will be able to push back on false teachings. We'll smell it when we see it. The contrast here between verses 17 and 18 is very clear. Verse 17, on one hand, this looks like a tree that does not grow, and so it, it loses its stability in earth, and it's blown over by the wind of false teaching. And then when we go to verse 18, this is a tree which keeps its roots planted in, in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and grows and stays healthy and is stable and does not go and blown over when false teaching comes in its life. This is the, the diligent perseverance in light of eternity that we are called to live out for God in Jesus Christ. How did Peter describe that? To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. I'd like to end by simply going to Jude. Jude does a pretty good way of showing kind of both sides of this. And so uh, I'll be reading some selected verses. In Jude 3 and 4, we read, Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And going to, now I'm going to verse 14. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and convict all of the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are the grumblers and the malcontents following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And then we read, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. 
to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen.